Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober, covering lifestyles in the world of real food. My guest today is Chris Kirsten, Chief Commercial Officer of Land to Market at the Savory Institute. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you on. I know we had you on the show before, which I can't believe was 10 years. That was very early on in this podcast inception, and I can't believe, I guess, in general that... I've been doing this show for 10 years now, but it's great to catch up with you again. Yeah, my life's changed a lot in 10 years. I imagine everyone's has, but <laughs> that's a pretty big transition for sure. Oh, totally. So before we had you on, you were working at a different place, and now you're working for the Savory Institute, where I know you've been for a while. Tell the listeners how you got involved with the Savory Institute. Yeah, about 10 years ago, so it would have been shortly after we did our thing. I had an opportunity to meet with the Savoring Institute as it was just getting started and just kind of up and running. They had spent about a year developing strategies and moving things to the next direction. And they were looking at hiring on some people beyond the founders and kind of growing the organization and, and doing some cool stuff. And I knew a number of people involved in the early days and I got asked to come and interview for a role they had and I got the job and I've been here for a decade now and have worn a lot of different hats and sat in different seats as the organization has grown and transformed over time but it's probably worth even pointing out a little bit what the Savory Institute is. I think so. Yeah people might be familiar with Alan Savory. He did a really popular TED talk nine years ago in the top 75 most watched TED Talks of all time. And it's about regenerative grazing. So apropos to the audience here, I think people would enjoy it if they haven't seen it. He's been promoting the work of holistic management for 60 years now. Holistic management is the concept of mimicking nature and agriculture, but then taking a triple bottom line planning framework so that you're actually planning for the outcomes you want in a proactive way, managing for the complexity of nature and kind of acknowledging where you can do that and where you can't, what resources you have to get there, and just making sure that you've got feedback loops for the social aspects of our lives, the environmental aspects of our lives, as well as the financial solvency of our businesses as farmers. And so tracking kind of all of that together He'd been promoting that movement and working with farmers in a B2B fashion, working with them to make their businesses more resilient for decades. There was all sorts of trainers around the world. And then he said, you know, I think we need to launch the Savory Institute to kind of bring a global coordination to that and bring some synergy to this whole movement as it's got kind of these different pockets around the globe to bring everybody into alignment. And so that's when the Savory Institute was formed. And then we started this concept of Savory Hubs, which is field offices that work with ranchers and farmers. But instead of like a franchise model or a corporate owned model, they're locally led and managed. So these are people that typically have been part of the holistic management movement for a while that say, okay, we want to open the field office in our region and take the good work of the Savory Institute and the knowledge, the curriculum, the training programs, all of that, and contextualize it to our social, economic, political context in our region. So we have over 50 of those field offices around the globe and operate on all six continents, primarily with that concept of training the farmers 
to utilize methodologies that, that they would just optimize their own management over time. Nobody's telling them what to do or how to farm. It's a method of optimization. How do you make your tenure with the land, your relationship with the land, and build off that to get the goals that we all want for stronger, healthier businesses and stronger environmental outcomes at the same time. When I heard that you were working for the Savory Institute, I thought, that's perfect because when I had you on the show before, you were speaking at the Wise Traditions Conference in Santa Clara, and you gave what I think is one of the best Wise Traditions talks, and the focus of it was all about holistic raising and you talked about the Savory Institute there, and that was actually where I first learned about what it is. Yeah, totally. That was a long time ago. So prior to this role, yeah, I was a farmer and have worked in the space for the better, really, my entire adult life. Uh, I started ranching and farming at 17 years old, but not multi-generational. And so I back-ended my way into this. And initially, as you would in a system like this, I kind of ended up with the pretty conventional folks. And as I was learning my way into agriculture, there were just lots of pieces that I just struggled with and wrestled with. And I found a book in the library, You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. I thought, wow, this is all the stuff that I thought was possible, but didn't really know anyone in my sphere of influence that was doing it. So I just devoured the book. It was just such a serendipitous time in my life. It was like a month or two later, he was coming to our town to speak to farmers. Now, for people that know Joel Salatin, this is before he was in Omnivore's Dilemma or Food Inc. Or any of the big documentaries. Oh, wow. It was way before that. And I got to meet him at the event. And we were talking. And, and he became an early mentor of mine. But in that kind of early mentorship, he said, you got to know about Alan Savory. That's the granddaddy of all this. So I started reading Alan's stuff. And lo and behold, the college I was going to, I had a couple of professors there that were trained in holistic management and educated trainers. And so shortly after, my classes start talking about it, which at that time was a rarity for universities to be talking about holistic management. So my classes started talking about it. So I got exposed to this other angle. And then I hooked up with this really cool farm, Chaff and Orchards, that was doing all sorts of holistic integration and raising livestock in orchards, started working with them. And through their journey of transformation and moving to a more progressive model and taking a more holistic approach, they got really deep into nutrition. And that's where I started to get exposed to Weston Price, to paleo, to some of these other concepts about how nutrition plays into and has a direct connection to how we steward the soil and how we raise these things. And nutrient density has kind of a synergy with how we steward the soil. And so, yeah, I did speak at a number of Wise Tradition conferences and still keep up with a lot of those folks. It's a great organization. They're doing some really cool things. So, yeah, it's been a long 10 years, like I said. And that was a similar evolution for me. It was first reading Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. And, of course, within that, I learned about Joel Salatin and then... Afterwards, I discovered Weston Price. I learned some of the nutrition and then went to the conference. So then that's where I saw you speak. And that was, like I said earlier, where I learned about what the Savory Institute is and who Alan Savory is. So I know within your work with the Savory Institute is this program called Land to Market. So how did that program come about? Yeah. So like I said, we had this 50-year model of working with farms and ranches and helping them take a holistic approach and make their businesses more resilient and had influenced 50 million hectares globally in that legacy of time. There was people working all over the world on this. In the Savory Institute form, we're building this global coordination. We're opening these remote offices that do training and implementation support. They're doing research. They're doing all sorts of cool things that make sense for their region of the world. 
And then all of a sudden we have brands knocking on our door and the brands are going, well, wait a minute, you've got this connection with producers globally. You are helping them create these net positive outcomes. What if we built a supply chain off of that? What if we started sourcing from them? What if we started recognizing these farms for the amazing work that they're doing? And we thought that sounds pretty cool, but it doesn't seem right to just vouch for a farm because they've had some training or that they're working with a accredited consultant. Well, that's great for them and their business. It wasn't really where we were at the level of, yeah, let's vouch for that and then vouch for all the things that might happen to the material grown on the farm through the supply chain into a finished good. We were uncomfortable with that. It's not how we want to do this. And so we said, what would really change the space? And we talk a lot at the Savings Institute about being farmer first. And a number of us, like myself, come from a production background. And so we were pretty familiar with other market-based certifications that were out, you know, your organics, your fair trade, your grass-fed, the more established ones and the more fringe ones. And we recognized how much burden that was for the farmer. And everybody knows this. I mean, the certification bodies know this, but it's kind of like farmers, the ones that are doing it right, are having to pay both financially and with a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork and things like that. They're having to pay to prove their own innocence. God, what can we really do? to change that, to flip the script on that. We said, what if we measured environmental outcomes? We've already been teaching farms how to create feedback loops from what they're seeing in the environment. What if we made that system more robust and made a way that we measured the outcomes of the environment? We looked at all the other certifications out there and none of them directly spoke to environmental health. We said, boy, these brands and certainly customers and shoppers that we know want to vote with their dollar about environmental impact. That's one of the values that they want to relate with. So we developed a scientific protocol called ecological outcome verification. We formed an academic consortium, a bunch of research bodies. So the Nature Conservancy in Texas A&M, Michigan State University, Sydney University in Australia, Ovis 21, a group of rangeland ecologists in South America. Those were the major contributors, but we had all sorts of researchers get involved and contribute to this. And we basically said, we don't want to measure the practices of what a farm's doing or create a list of do and do not. Like, here's what the farmer's allowed to do and not allowed to do. We want to measure the outcomes of what's happening on the land and create a democracy of data that really speaks to this new food and fiber paradigm that we're trying to create. But we also want there to be a feedback loop mechanism of that. And this is not me knocking organic at all. But when you as a farmer go get certified organic, at the end of the day, you don't know anything more about your farm than you knew in the morning. When you do a process like this, you're now getting a dashboard that's showing you these are leading indicators to environmental health. These are the lagging indicators to environmental health. This is how you can look at those leading indicators every day while you're out on the farm and kind of teach a new lexicon or language of the land, if you will, that farmers can use to optimize their management. And again, build on that tenure. Most farmers have a generational relationship to the land. Build on that tenure that you already have with the land. So, we build this protocol, this ecological outcome verification, we call it EOV for short, and it's designed specifically to look at an aggregate of ecosystem health. So not a single variable like just carbon or just water. Sometimes I kind of call those the charismatic environmental components, but look at them all together because they're all interrelated. So we look at soil health, we look at carbon, we look at water, we look at biodiversity, we look at plant life, we look at bug life. We're looking at how the whole ecosystem functions as a whole, obviously with kind of pillars of independent data sets in there that can get wrapped up together. So we build this ecological outcome verification and then said, okay, so for a brand that wants to be able to claim regenerative, because now in this time, 
regenerative wasn't a buzzword 10 years ago. It was just on the fringe. A lot of people were still talking about concepts like beyond organic. We don't even know what to call it. It's just it's something more than I'm not using prohibitive chemicals. I'm doing more stewardship of my land. And then regenerative kind of started to coalesce as the buzzword. And I remember there was a tipping point where I went to Expo West, the big natural food expo in, in Anaheim. I think it's the largest natural food event in the world. Mm-hmm. And we gave a little talk on regenerative and a bunch of people didn't know what it was. The following year, almost every major brand had some sort of statement of commitment to how they were going to support regenerative in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying that anything about the validity of that, but there was a distinct tipping point that happened inside of a year that all of a sudden a light switch turned on. And so regenerative wasn't really a buzzword in the beginning, but by this time it is. So we've got this protocol, and now we're going to brands and saying, okay, if you really want to speak to regenerative agriculture, for number one, let's be clear about what it is. For us, regenerative is synonymous with net positive. It means that you're actually making the land better than it was before, and we're speaking about environmental increase. There's all sorts of values that we align with, but for us, we're talking about the environment, we're talking about net positive, like going beyond sustainability. And so we said, if you want to go engage with regenerative, let's engage with farms that are actually measuring it. That's going to be the most robust way to speak to net positive improvement. And so we built a membership program for brands to be able to engage with farms that are doing it right, getting these net positive results and are on that journey of stewardship for them to be able to put a seal on package that says this product comes from regenerating land base. It's grown in a way that's actually healing the environment. And we think that's the first time that's really been done in history that you could have a science-backed outcome-based claim on a package that speaks to that environmental outcome. So we started working with brands in the early days. It was just a hand. It was Epic Provisions. Caring Group came on pretty early, which Caring Group is in Paris. It's a fashion holding company, and they own Gucci, Balenciaga, St. Laurent, Alexander McQueen, about a dozen high-end luxury fashion brands. And then Zook's Pet Treat came on board, and that was kind of the original three. And we started working with each of those companies and saying, okay, what is it you need? You need to understand supply. You need to understand how to engage with the farmers to get these products. You need to understand the science. And so we've got this robust data and this third-party backed empirical data coming off the land that speaks to a lot of your environmental goals. So how do we integrate those two together? And then you need the storytelling. You need to be able to effectively communicate with the marketplace what regenerative is, why you're supporting it, and speak to that with integrity and robustness and a synergy with how everybody else is talking about it and the other brands that are part of this program. So we built a membership package that is those three pillars, supply, science, and story, and started working with brands to really overhaul their supply chains and get regenerative product flow through into their lines. And so now we have over 100 brands that we're working with that are doing that day in and day out, and that number of brands grows every week. We get new brands that sign on to our program. So super exciting. It's a lot for 10 years, but every day I kind of pinch myself like, I can't believe that companies, both big and small, are doing this and engaging with this. And I understand all the reasons why they are, because it's what I've committed my life to. But to actually believe that the marketplace would come around to it in such a short amount of time and make real legitimate changes to how business is done, just a pleasure to be a part of. So it sounds like 10 years ago, this is something that you never thought would have happened by now. Yeah, pretty much. I think we are ahead of the curve. I guess the tension I wrestle with there is, I think we're ahead of the curve for what I thought 
was actually plausible and kind of where we would be. I think we temper that with we are well behind the curve of where humanity needs to be to hit the targets we need to hit to prevent climate change and other major disasters. We're still wrestling with water insecurity, world hunger, struggling rural economies. Those are also all interrelated and go back to stewardship approach. So it makes sense. I think none of us come really from a market background or trying to satiate the needs of big business. But when you look at what humanity has in front of it from a challenge, I can't see a future that's positive without business being at the table and acting as a force for good to kind of steal that from B Corp. And so that was kind of our mindset for getting into the marketplace. So Absolutely. We're further along than I thought going into that space we would be today. I know even a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought it would be like this now where people actually know what regenerative is because I remember before the pandemic, the last in-person Natural Products Expo West was in 2019, and I didn't see too many companies there talking about regenerative agriculture. And then COVID hit and there wasn't an in-person Expo West for the next two years. And then I went to this one back in March, and I was just amazed at how many companies were talking about regenerative agriculture and companies of all kinds. Of course, there were the meat companies, but there was also things like Big Picture Foods, the Olives Company. We're talking about regenerative, and Dr. Bronner's is doing regenerative chocolate, and yeah, it's a complete surprise for me. Totally. We did a presentation there where we had Applegate, which is also one of our older partners. They came on kind of shortly after Epic and Zooks, and we've been working with them for a long time. And they've now launched some pretty major product streams. So we've got the Do Good Dog. So it's a hot dog that's all coming from EOV land bases, and the supply chain is tracked and monitored by land to market. And just to be clear on that, EOV monitors farm health, land to markets what certifies products. And so there's a hand-in-hand approach to that or two sides to the same coin, if you will. And so we had Applegate on a panel, and then we had Timberland on a panel. And so we've worked with Timberland for four years now. I think we've launched 11 or 12 different products with them at this point. The first was their Earthkeeper boot. So you can go on the Timberland website, you can Google regenerative, and it'll pull up all the products that qualify. Now, some of the products that we work with them on are not necessarily available in North America. They're available in Europe or Asia or different places, but you will see a number of them in North America for sure. So the Earthkeeper boot was the first one to come out. And we worked with them to connect with one of our savory hubs that was also a meat company, Thousand Hills Lifetime Grazed, based up in Minnesota. And we developed bespoke supply chain. Timberland knew some folks that we also knew called Other Half Processing that was kind of working on how do we create the supply chain pieces in the middle and connect with the abattoirs and the tanneries and everybody else to be able to create a bespoke and custom supply chain that can trace product back to the beginning. And Timberland worked with us. We got the supply chain. We got leather from the farmers to Timberland into finished goods, into boots. And the farmers got paid for their hides. Now, a number of monumental things happened there. When I was at the farms I managed in the early aughts, I was really early to the direct-to-consumer game and did CSAs and did urban buying drops and did farmer's markets and sold online. I knew how to sell as much of the meat on that animal as possible. And that was the other side of kind of the nutrient density thing that was fun for me is that 
people were buying the rest of the animal. We're able to sell the organ meats and the bones and chicken heads and all be excited about it. We were utilizing those products in our own life, which is super cool. But the hide, I never got a home. And I remember just thinking and wanting and just being like, okay, there's got to be a leather revolution that happens here. And I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to find small scale tanneries that can process product and that we're going to really be able to fully appreciate this material and this medium for all the story and the values that go with it. Now we fast forward to Timberland and we're now working on this product and the first boot the Earth Keepers launched and it was just a monument in my life, just such a highlight moment that this is actually happening. This is real. And farmers pay a disposal fee for the hide at the abattoir. And through this partnership with this OHP, they were able to negotiate a deal where the farmer didn't have to pay a disposal fee because it wasn't getting disposed of and get the brand to cover a $10 per hide fee forward. Now, so we're erasing negative opportunity costs and now getting into the positive territory. Now, $10 doesn't change anybody's life on the one $10 alone. You get to more volume producers and Western ranches that have larger herds of animals. It's real difference. I mean, the old saying on a herd of animals on large scale Western ranching, it's about $20 a head is your margin over about a couple of years of raising an animal. So now you add 10 bucks to that. It's real money and it adds up over time. And just the signal it sends that the farmer's being appreciated for this other piece of this animal and this whole other category of goods was amazing. So to bring it back to Timberland and Applegate, Timberland comes on, we're working with them. We have these in-person events with our brands and we start to get brands in the same room and our apparel brands and our meat brands are staring at each other going, wait a minute, we're sourcing from the same farms. Sometimes we're selling to the same consumers and our industries never talk to each other. We each have different parts of the puzzle figured out. We don't trade employees. We don't go to the same events. We don't really know each other. How we account for sustainability is completely different. And there was an epiphany that we had out on a ranch in Texas where the two sectors kind of got together and said, holy smokes, we got to be working together. And Applegate and Timberland were the first ones to do this and say, wait a minute, let's share resources and how we source back from the farms and create these traceable supply chains and develop these relationships with processors. There's some overlap in some of the processes we're working with and certainly overlap in the farmers we're buying from. Let's share some resources on this front. So Timberland and Applegate have a public cooperation and partnership on this front. And so at Expo, we got to go on stage and talk about that and what that looks like to a crowd that's pretty interested in supply chains and traceability and transparency and impact accounting for sustainability and things like that. So it was super fun that we've gotten to these tipping points and had these amazing milestones that are happening. So I'm very hopeful about the future. I love it because that's something actually which I've been asking for for a while before I was involved with this podcast or Weston Price, I was always interested in environmentalism. And I mean, that's part of how this came about was I eat meat and wanted to do a blog explaining how I could be environmental and eat meat. And so in that time also, I love my leather jacket and I would have to explain to people, oh, I think leather is environmental and also you know, leather shoes, that's environmental because the alternative people were pushing were fake leather made out of oil. Well, that's not environmental. But then <laughs> right. someone brought up, right, but then someone brought up the good point of, well, there is a problem, though, of what's used to make the leather isn't coming from the same places 
that are making the steaks and the ground beef that we eat. And so I'd been pushing for that for a while. And I loved your talk at the Expo West with Applegate. That was great. And going to that, I've gotten to form a great relationship with the people at that company and learn more of what they are. And one of the things that I loved that you had at that was you had these land-to-market lanyards, which were made out of leather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did an initial run of veg-tanned leather coming from white oak pastures, which many folks will probably know from this, but a very integrated farm in Georgia, family-run. Oh, yeah, amazing what they do. Fifth generation, super cool what they do. We were able to get hides from them and then veg tan the leather and then laser etch them with land to market on the side. And I think the original one, we co-branded with Epic. And so one side of the lanyard said land to market, the other side said Epic Provisions. And then they got a nice little brass swivel on them. So now every time you go to a conference, you can say no to that polyester lanyard that you're going to throw out anyway because it has their name on it. So when you go to the next event, you're not going to wear that again. And so now we have 200 that we released at this, it was probably 2019. I think it was the last in-person. But now you go to the event and you're wearing a reusable one that you're proud to have and that has high durability. But we ran out of those. And so now we actually just actually have the sample sitting in front of me. We just found a larger scale provider to make those for us again. So same thing, veg tan leather. I think we're getting it from White Oak again. And we've got a cool little brass swivel on there. And there's a couple updates to it that's kind of some new features. But we're going to start having those at events again too, so that kind of all of our folks that we work with can showcase their part of land to market and then have a responsible item that they can take to the various different conferences that they go to. I'll be glad to wear that. I do save all of my ones. Actually, I like to keep them as souvenirs, so I never (laughs) throw them out. But also, I would love to wear yours just as a statement about how leather can be sustainable when it comes from regenerative farms. And I know that Stephanie Alexander, I've noticed that she always wears hers, Stephanie Alexander of Alexander Family Farms, from that talk where that was where I first met her when she attended your talk you did in 2018. And she's proud to wear it at every show at Expo West. And I've seen her wear it at the fancy food shows too. And I just think that's great. Yeah, no. And that's a good point to talk about the Alexander's. Originally, we were kind of focused on meat, wool, and leather, and those were kind of the primary categories that we worked on. Dairy has some interesting challenges in that you have to bring the animals in once, twice, sometimes, some operations, three times a day into the milking parlor to milk them, which means that if you're doing a grass-based system and not a feedlot system, if you're raising these animals out on the land, it really changes your grazing plan of how you can impact that land when you have to go back and forth to this milking parlor so many times a day. It limits how you get to further parts of the property. And so it's really Formula One racing. You really have to be on your A game of knowing. And then the other thing that's interesting about that, whatever they eat that day shows up in the flavor and the quality of the milk. The dairy guys, they call it components. So it shows up in your butter fats and things like that. And you'll get feed flavor as well. And so you can't be dumping them into beef animals like, oh, well, you got this back 40 we haven't got to in a long time. And yeah, there's some strong palatable kind of herby perennials back there, but it'll be fine. We'll dump them out there. We'll impact the land and then we'll kind of move to another spot. And two years from now, sometimes three years from now, by the time they're harvested, no one's ever going to notice that they got into a patch of tar weed or something like that. So you have more tools in the toolbox and how you manage the landscape. You don't have that in dairy. So we were looking for kind of the right dairy partner for a long time. I've known of the Alexanders, but didn't know their operation real well until the last couple of years. And so they went through the EOV process and 
really got great numbers. And then our team has been out there, a whole land to market team. We did one of our annual team meetings. We kind of talk about strategy and goals. We did that out at Blake and Stephanie's place. And it really is kind of the white oak pastures of dairy. And they're just really doing things right. So they're our first dairy partner to come on board, both from a brand perspective and then also from a supply perspective. And because they've been doing things different for a long time, and fluid milk doesn't really self-segregate. They had to create their own supply chain options. So they've got relationships with suppliers that already are good at keeping their product separate and have all the integrity needed to do that. And so we started working with them, and now we have a number of dairy products that are coming out of their supplies. Alex Ice Cream is a new one, super awesome. We've got a new product coming out. I don't know when it launches, when we cut the ribbon on it, but it's going to be soon got some national distribution options, I think, through Whole Foods, but it's a cheese cracker. So I can't say the name of the cracker you would compare it to in an orange box, but it's basically a regenerative square cheese cracker. And that's all coming from Alexander's Milk as well. So there's some cool stuff happening in dairy. And now that we kind of have that foothold and some things happening, we're able to do more dairy-specific workshops and trainings. And we've got a number of other dairy suppliers coming on board. Right. So you've touched upon working with the grass-fed meats and the fashion industry and now the dairy. And are you looking at also working with some crops and plant-based foods? Yeah, we're pretty excited about plant-based meat. I think that's probably the real solution to all of our environmental concerns. (laughs) Yeah, we are working into the cropping space. Here's another spot where kind of the dialogue and the zeitgeist, the paradigm, whatever word you want to use is kind of shifting For whatever reason, for at least the last 50 years, anything cropping-based or plant-based is the new buzzword. You're totally right to use that. Just gets kind of a free pass. It's like, oh, well, that must be better for you, and that must be better for the planet. Mm -hmm. So a principle of regenerative is you want to keep the soil covered and armored as much as possible. So if you want to get net positive results, you want a living root in the soil for as much of the year as possible. Bare ground doesn't do much for the environment. It doesn't photosynthesize. You usually get a capped soil that doesn't accept water as well. So you're not getting precipitation recharge back into the underground water reserves. It's often that topsoil that took a long time to build is at risk of eroding away. It's not supporting habitat for wildlife or biodiversity. Not a lot happening on bare ground. And from a climate change perspective, it really holds on to heat. And so now it becomes this thermal mass that holds on to heat rather than if you take one of those laser thermometers and you point it at bare ground versus something that just has a little bit of plant cover versus a lot of plant cover, the difference in degrees go down drastically. And we all know this from walking on hot beach sand versus walking into a lawn or a shaded meadow. And so the plant-based space, I think, has some evolution to do. I don't know how much people drive around cropland, but I see a lot of bare ground in crop ground. One of the things that has never really made sense to me as somebody who isn't a multi-generational rancher kind of coming into the space, it seems so evident to me and so common sense that it's like, okay, animal agriculture is trying to work into an existing ecosystem and enhance it. Cropping is trying to erase the existing ecosystem and micromanage a much more reductionist new one. So even your most progressive ones, it's like, oh, well, we put a hedgerow or we've got some some pollinators that we bring in and maybe we plant some pollination hedgerow on the edge or we're fallowing for less time or we're doing intercropping or we're doing cover crops. It's all much more simplistic and reductionist than how nature 
would do that. There would be a lot more complexity there. There would be a lot more species there. And I thought, why isn't this common sense to everybody? And I think it's just, we became the most ecologically illiterate society of all time. And we're all kind of coming back to, okay, that's not going to work for the future of civilization. We've got to come back around to understanding how nature works. So we're not going to make it. And so I think we're kind of having this collective epiphany that's getting to the same place of where I got to in my own journey, that people are seeing that. And so this notion of cropping, getting a free pass, I think is a limited window. I think we're going to see this buzzword of plant-based have its short moment in the sun and not last the test of time. That doesn't mean that we don't need good cropping to happen, but we need that cropping to still hit the same environmental impact targets that we're able to hit in these more complex eco-regions and in these more complex animal agriculture systems. And so what we do when we work with plant-based systems, when we work in cropping, is we want to see some sort of animal life integrated into that cropping system. Because everywhere on the planet, nature puts plants and animals together. It was only humans that took that and said, nope, we're going to pull that apart into separate silos. Plants go over here, animals go over here, and we're now going to treat them as totally different systems. Everywhere from the jungle to the tundra to the desert, everywhere in between has plants and animals working in some sort of symbiosis. And so if we want our food and fiber systems to mimic nature, we need to take that into account. So I don't have any target on cropping as a system's back, but for them to hit the principles of regenerative, they've got to integrate more complexity into that system and take a more nature-based approach and model. And so we ask at a bare minimum that there be animal integration into that cropping at some point. Now, we don't care if they eat the animals. We've got a pilot and we've been trying to get off the ground for a while with a group in India that is doing some really progressive things in cotton. And I haven't been able to get trainers or monitors onto the ground because India has been such a hotbed for COVID, hoping that can happen here in this next growing season. But they are grazing in those cotton fields in between growing cycles and of course, with the culture there, nobody's consuming those animals. It's not about that. It's about the nature-based approach. So again, we're having this collective epiphany. People are seeing that on their own, that, okay, we need to have animal impact. This is a tool in the toolbox that nature uses and get to that space. So we do have a handful of products, I want to be careful how I advertise this, that do meet those requirements and are getting net positive EOV results and are thus labeled by land to market. The two big ones is we have a hemp product, a CBD product from Onda Wellness that is coming from a very closed, very direct supply chain coming from a farm that's been EOV verified for the last few years that we've had it available in her area. She also does really cool leather projects and does livestock things. They basically take a section of a small area, pasture out each year and grow some organic crops. And they've done some hemp crops. And then we were able to connect with Onda Wellness that then took that hemp crop and was able to turn it into their CBD tincture. It's a cool product. Check it out. The way that they get the CBD out is very different than a traditional extraction process. So go check out their website and learn more about that. But that was the first one. And then second, we got into the wine space. And so those that in the wine space are starting to say, okay, we need animal integration here too, spraying Roundup or glyphosate down to control all the grass and vegetation that are growing under our vines isn't probably the best way to do that. And so how can we do that better? And so our initial launch in that space was with Mariah Vineyards. We have a couple of other brands that are coming on board, but Mariah was really the first one and the only one that has met all the requirements that have the land to market seal on their wine label. So we're working with them. 
And then we have a lot of nut pilots going on right now. So we've got people that are kind of what I used to do at Chaffin Orchards, where they're grazing into orchard systems. So we've got a pilot going with almonds in California, a pilot soon to get started here with pecans in South Africa. And then we're looking at similarly doing one with hazelnuts in Turkey. So you will see more crop-related items come from land to market in the near future. But again, to get to those net positive results, you've got to mimic nature. And sometimes cropping the way we do it day in and day out conventionally is pretty far from a nature-based approach. So there's just a lot of shift that has to happen to get us there. Wow. The Savory Institute's land to market program, it touches upon everything that's important to me because that's something that I've been stressing is in order to do regenerative, in order to have agriculture that's truly environmental, you have to mix animals with the crops. And I've gotten this debate with a lot of people. I say, well, what about composting? And sure, I compost for my garden, but for a large scale, you have to have livestock. Cows are the heroes I see of regenerative agriculture. For sure. It's all about biological decay. So how humans and cities and civilization deals with their waste that we've taken basically all of this organic material off of the landscape and this huge footprint area concentrated into an urban jungle and then throw it all away into a landfill is just layers of egregious. To take the product that's coming out of that city, that organic matter, and say, let's collectively aggregate this and compost it makes total sense. Of course we should be doing that. And we should be managing our municipal open landscapes and nearby farms and so forth should be using that as part of their resource base. But when you talk about how are we going to heal the landscapes of Central Asia or Central Australia or the larger American West, where they're not close to the hives of civilization, the trucking costs would be insane. You're not going to fly this stuff on with an airplane. We have to look at what was the scalable solution that nature uses. And nature provides biological decay in grasslands when these grasses grow and then the plants reach senescence and their photosynthesis slows and then eventually they die. If you're in a dry climate, those plants will sit there and become chemically oxidized, become these little mineral skeletons and shade out future growth of any other future grass plant. Grasslands are designed to have grazers as a part of them. I think we tend to think of them as some sort of like antithesis, that the grass doesn't really want to be grazed. Well, if that was the case, they wouldn't both still be here. (laughs) There's a lot of timing and planning that went into this, and the two have a synergistic relationship. And so when we're trying to manage our landscapes, and we're not talking about forests, and we're talking about our savannas, our shrublands, and our grasslands, there's a strong animal component of how those areas are maintained. And there's a direct relationship with what we call the brittleness scale, the drier that region is and the longer periods that it has without rainfall. So some places get monsoonal. In California, I live in the American West. I live in Northern California. We're starting to get more monsoonal with climate change. So we get big storms in December and big storms in May. And really the other 10 months of the year, we're pretty dry. That's a long period of time for the soil to try to hold on to moisture and keep microbes alive that can break things down. Those same microbes that would be in your compost to break down dead plants and animals that get in contact with the surface of the soil. For the plant side of the equation, this is where nature uses the ruminant, which is just a fancy way of saying your four stomach animals like cows, sheep, goats. This is where nature uses the ruminant to be that role of biological decay because the animal can still get to bodies of water, to the creek, the stream, the spring, whatever it might be. 
feed those same microbes in its stomach that are in the soil, and now it becomes this portable pack of microbes or biological decay on four legs that can go and provide that function that nature needs to get that product decayed and be able to break down to the ground. So now you get a manure pat on the land that when the rains come back, is very easy to integrate back into the soil and become a source of fertility. So what you'll see is the more brittle a landscape, the larger the herds are and the more bunched and moving they are. So a very brittle landscape is sub-Saharan Africa. And think about the large animal migrations that we all see on PBS or Discovery Channel of those large groups of herbivores bunched and moving. And that's because they have very brief windows of rainfall that you need those animals to go out and provide that role on the landscape. Here in the American West, we're not as brittle as that, but we're pretty darn brittle. Most of our soils in the Midwest were built by large groups of undulates, of those ruminants out on the land, American bison, and then we had 40 other megafauna that have now gone extinct that were also a part of that system. And those deep soils of the Midwest that were now, frankly, to be hopefully not too crude, but raping to grow corn and soy, those deep soils and that fertility was built by grazing, rest, grazing, rest, grazing, rest, and these large groups bunched and moving all the time. So you're right. It is critical to ecosystem function that we have properly integrated animal impact. And until we collectively get that as a species and stop throwing stones at each other about whether it's plant-based or animal-based, I don't know that we're really going to unlock the true potential of this movement and, again, get there in time. We're running out of time. We've got to get clear on this stuff. We do, and it's, I think, important we know that nature isn't vegan because (laughs) this is a system that's been done for thousands of years before agriculture when buffalo roamed the earth, and we can't switch to an agriculture system that basically we've never used in the history of the world. The agriculture system has always involved animals grazing. Yep, that's it. And so in regards to the land-to-market program, what have people felt about the idea of connecting brands to good health? Yeah, it's interesting for one. It's one we try to walk with the utmost responsibility as possible. I think on the one hand, how do we, in an overconsumptive and wasteful society, how do we make sure that we're not sending the message or the mixed signal that we're going to shop our way out of or consume our way out of climate change? On the other hand, the biggest impact that average people have with nature and with the environment is how we feed and clothe ourselves. And so we talk a lot in our communications and messaging of how do we get that clear that we're not sending this message of irresponsibility or overconsumerism or kind of driving into the bad side of capitalism, if you will, but rather get to that place that this is how we should still all be making good decisions. We should be buying products that last. We should be fixing things and reusing things. We should be frugal and responsible but at the same time buy products that are verified to be coming from places that are healing the land. So we work with big brands and small brands. I tell my big brands this all the time that I have more hope for the small brands. The big brands, I think some of them are evolving. Can they evolve fast enough is a question we don't have the answer to yet. Our smaller brands, we have a lot of startups, a lot of mid-sized brands, a lot of just regional and local brands that work with us, they typically are not doing this to try to save their skins and evolve and still be around for another generation. They're doing this out of passion and they're building businesses around their values. It's in their DNA. So they're not trying to fix a history or a past. They're trying to create something new. What they lack though is scale. And so we work all across the board, both brands that are big and small, old and young, 
and we're agnostic to what a brand's history was. All I want to know is that if you're showing up at the table and you say you want to be a part of the solution today, from today forward, that's where I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. And we tell brands all the time, no, you're not ready. We hear what you're saying, but you're looking for something very transactional, very short-sighted. You're looking for a one-and-done, a check-the-box to be able to say you're part of some sort of nouveau movement, but you're not really trying to overhaul your entire supply chain. You're not really trying to overhaul how business is done and how you treat people and treat the land. You're trying to build a shield around yourself. And so we say no to those people all the time. If a brand says, nope, I can't tell you how often I've heard people all the way to the C-suite, the chief level at an organization say, we're going to be dinosaurs. We're going to go extinct. We see the writing on the wall, the way we've done business for the last 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever it is, is it going to work in the next generation? There's no one to sell to. There's nothing to extract from if we're all dead, if we're not here anymore, if civilization collapses as we know it. So I see some of these big brands get it. And it's why we've said, okay, we're going to work with you. We're going to work with you eyes wide open. We're going to be really frank that we've got some concerns and we're going to hold you accountable to what we set forth to do together. So that's how we engage with companies. It is kind of weird, I think, in my own personal life. And I have kind of family connections into the big business space. And I turn down opportunities left and right to now be working with big companies again. I think it sometimes it shocks myself. And I know certainly shocks my family. It's just like, what happened? But I think just, again, going back to how do we get there without the marketplace, without scale, I just don't see us doing it in time without utilizing all the resources that we have on the table. And I do legitimately see big brands, small brands making massive changes in the way that business is done. And so we want to be a part of exploring that and seeing how far can we get with that system because we need every piece of positive momentum we can get to get there in time. I struggle with those questions all the times with my blog because it's a very similar focus. My blog is all about the best products in the industry, so I am focusing on consumerism. But I think that that's in a lot of ways how we learn about what companies are doing right, and you essentially have to work within the system in order to accomplish this. Totally. Yep. That's exactly our approach. We're just about out of time, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can go online to learn more about Land to Market. Yeah. So you can go to landtomarket.com, and that's a newer website for us. So we now have our own dedicated website. I also recommend you check out the Savory Institute and what we're doing over there and how we're working with farms and ranches. And Land to Market is a program of the Savory Institute, so there's information about it over there as well. So that's savory.global. So landtomarket.com and savory.global. I check out those. And on landtomarket.com, you can see buying guides, products that are verified, and see all the brands that we're working with as well over there. So you can dig in deeper. And then we're going to build out some larger portals over here in the next year to make it really, really easy for people to be able to shop responsibly and say, okay, I want to find all the products that qualify for this. We also have some really big partnerships going on with retailers. So you're going to see more highlight happening at point of sale, both a little bit happening in apparel, a lot happening in food on the retailer partnership side. So you'll see more happening there. And so all of that information will be updated on the land to market website as time goes on. I love it. That's all things that I want to see more of. So thank you so much for coming. So I wanted to have you back on the program for a long time. And I think this has been excellent. Love it. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron, for what you do. And I had no idea walking into this that it had been 10 years. Yeah. So kind of a fun little time capsule to relive mentally and walk through. Love what you're doing. Let's continue to collaborate and get the message out there. And thank you for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure to do it again. Oh, great. And yeah, I'd love to have you on again. Cool. All right. All right. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. 
New episodes of this show are now released every Wednesday. Follow me on social media for more information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.